welcome to the Scotta Chronicast, the podcast which discusses all things relating to medieval Scotland. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Buchanan. This is episode 28. I'm excited to be joined again by Dr. Marion Toledo, and today we have a very special episode, because this episode is the first of our book club episodes for the Scotta Chronicast. We are going to start talking about the Chronicle, which is the namesake for this podcast, the Scotta Chronicon, uh, written by Walter Bauer. I encourage you to join us in reading the Scotta Chronicon and the other Chronicles of Scotland as we progress through the book club series. Without further ado, on to the episode. Welcome to the first book club episode of the Scotta Chronicast. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's going to be a, a different kind of podcast than we normally have. Um, so I'm excited that we're going to be talking about the Scotta Chronicon. After <laughs> a year of saying the Scotta Chronicast, it's <laughs> difficult for me to say. Yeah, it's not to be confused with what we're doing. Yeah, it is the namesake for <laughs> or where the name for this podcast, Scotta Chronicast, took its inspiration. <laughs> and therefore, I thought it was a be a good place to start. That being said, it's not the earliest chronicle relating to Scottish history. And <laughs> as we were discussing before we started recording, potentially not even the most interesting chronicle. But <laughs> <laughs> not a bestseller, everyone. <laughs> but it's still got some really interesting and weird things in it that'll be super fun to talk about. So we are using a version that is an abridged version. So in light of our listeners being able to join in, I decided that it would be a good idea to have something that was very accessible to the public. So we are, I think we're both working off of Kindle versions of the version edited by D.E.R. Watt. It's a history book for Scots selections from the Scotta Chronicon. Um, it's available on Kindle um, for, I don't know, what's showing currently is $12. So it's not a huge investment. Easy, instant access to the wonders of the Scotta Chronicon um, via Kindle. The Scotta Chronicon was written, <laughs> compiled by... Um, ex extended... Compiled <laughs> by uh, Walter Bauer, who wrote this, I think, while he was abbot at Inchcolm Abbey. Yes. And he was writing in the 15th century. Uh, yeah, he was writing in the 1440s, I think. Right. Um, so I think he died in 1449. So mm -hmm. probably the last of his legacy. His Magnus Opus. Yes. Um, there are obviously full versions of the Scottacron available out there. Do you have any other interesting tidbits about Walter Bauer? Um, yes. And by interesting tidbits, um, I'm literally gonna read you a footnote I have in my thesis. Um, Excellent. I, 
I don't want to make it sound like I completely remember about what I wrote about Bauer. It's it's been a few years, so it, um, it, it wasn't <laughs> your main focus, focal point of your thesis, and it and it wasn't, and it wasn't. So um, <laughs> Walter Bauer was uh, born in Haddington, East Lothian, and he was an Augustinian canon at St Andrews around the year 400. He also seemed to be trained at the University of St. Andrews and earned a Bachelor of Decrete or Canon Law by 1417. So he was one of the earliest ones to go to the University of St. Andrews, it seems. And uh, yeah, he was abbot of Inchcolum Abbey, where presumably he um, wrote the Scotty Chronicon. Mm -hmm. Something that's characteristic of 15th century Scottish chronicles, and it's true for Bower, but also true for someone writing a little bit before Bower, uh, Andrew of Winton, is that both Bower and Winton had knights of five as their patrons. So the Scottish Chronicon was written for Sir David Stewart of Rosyth, um, part of one of the Stewart cadet families, um, yeah. like Andrew of Winton's um, original chronicle was written for Sir John Weems. So both Knights of Five that do have connections to the crown in some mm-hmm. way or another. Interesting to note that that these chronicles are not, they're not the result of royal patronage. Itself. Right. And one of the things that is also very interesting of, of the Scottish Chronicon, and we also see it in, in Winton, is an interest for this kind of five-centric kind of history. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's more apparent in when we see the story of Malcolm and, and uh, Macduff and Macbeth, where the action really takes place in five. Yeah, yeah. The geography, the focus of geography is kind of an interesting one in this chronicle, which we can go into more detail as we work through it. Yeah, and Bauer, he starts, his starting point is what we know now as the Chronica Gentiscotorum, which had been attributed to John of Fordun. Now we know, no, John of Fordun actually wrote this, but um, he seemed to start out with the Chronica Gentiscotorum, and as he got closer to the historical narratives that were closer to his time, he started adding more and more and more to, to the chapters, to the chapters from the Chronica. Mm-hmm. It seems like the beginning of it wasn't so much added to. There's some really cool stories, though. Yeah, there's some pretty fun stories. But yeah, he starts going into a lot more detail as it as it goes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's I think closer it, to modern times, as it were, for him. I think it spiraled out of control. Like <laughs> at, at some point, you say, "Okay, maybe I overdid it with being thorough," but. Um, <laughs> He just kept adding and adding and adding and really trying to center Scottish history around a more European narrative as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, adding information about Roman emperors and and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's really um, it's really interesting how it became so lengthy. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he just kind of was like, "Well, I still have time on my hands. Uh, still I, getting paid for this." <laughs> he might be one of the few people who actually has read this cover to cover. Like, um, <laughs> it's 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 quite it's insane. <laughs> yes, it is very lengthy. So we're going to be talking about the first five books today um, because it would be a very long episode to talk about all of the books. So he starts with <laughs> talking about the origin 
mm-hmm. of the Scots, which is a story that is completely ridiculous and I absolutely <laughs> love um, <laughs> about how, well, it's the son of a Greek king mm-hmm. who I want to highlight at the very beginning, he says is mentally unhinged yes i was like (laughs) wow this sounds promising well done and then bases the entire (laughs) history of the nation of the scots on this individual who gets banished from greece goes to egypt where he marries a princess, but then all of the Egyptian nobles get drowned in the Red Sea. In the time of Moses. In the time of Moses. So, you know, we're we're in the, the long time ago biblical times here, which is interesting in and of itself that he's trying to like root the history of the Scots as an as ancient as as those that you would be talking about in biblical history. Mm -hmm. And then they move to Spain. Uh, Out of all places. Then, like, he creates a good nation in Spain. Then one of his sons goes exploring, finds an island, and, like, decides to conquer that island. But but not before we're told that Gaithelos, this prince, became fluent in many languages because he was around the Tower of Babel. Yes. Which I thought made him attractive to the Egyptians. Yeah, which I thought was the most random thing in the world (laughs) to include. One of the things that it's based on an Irish mythology that has some parallels in Galician mythology as well. So Mm -hmm. I I think that in later in one of the chapters it mentions Mil España, which was the king of Scots that was well um, king of Scots while the Scots were in Spain, and he's from like where the Scots then decide to go to Ireland and and then goes on. Right. Um, But he is not only included in the Irish Book of Invasions, but also it seems that he is, he has some parallels in in Galician, like origin stories as well. So the the story is not exclusively Irish, much less Scottish, which I think it's really interesting to see those parallels that you wouldn't expect otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. That is super interesting. Yeah. Because, and I know it's it's like a, a really prevalent idea of like this migration and like the Egyptian mm. origins. Oh, that's yeah. I guess the important thing we should the, the Egyptian wife oh, um, yeah. was named Scotia or Scotia. I'm not sure how you would want to pronounce it in Egyptian. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound very Egyptian but... <laughs> no, it doesn't. What if, whatever you say. You know, hence the name of Scots. I'm from the, I'm from Prince Gaithelos, which seems to be his name. Um, yeah. Co- comes the Gales. That's where the word Gale comes from, apparently. And why they have two separate lines, given that they were a married couple with joint offspring, I don't know. But- that never made sense to me. <laughs> Well, just thinking that perhaps it has to do with bringing together like those two big or very important ancient civilizations that kind of justifies the Scottish people, like having ancestry from Egypt, but not just Egypt, Egypt at the time of Moses and and having ancestry from ancient Greece. Like it's, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's really trying to ground the nation's history as we are we are a big deal. We've been here forever. Exactly. We're important people. However true or not these stories might be. Well, there's a couple more interesting things about these early bits that he talks about that I found. One of them was that he talks about all the islands that have been anciently considered part of Scotland. 
um, or the land that would eventually be called Scotland. Um, and I thought that was super interesting considering the, the, how contested the, <laughs> the islands, which nation they belong to is, especially during the time that Walter Bauer is writing. No, no doubt influenced by that. <laughs> especially what I found interesting on the list was that the Isle of Man was attributed to being Scottish, anciently Scottish. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it was. Some people might think otherwise, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, at that time, there were like, <laughs> like five different countries claiming the Isle of Man. So. Which book is that in, if you don't mind me asking? Is that uh, book? It's book one. It's the second section, the islands northwest of Europe. Oh, yeah. And then um, in the next section of this book, we we've, hear the origins of the Stone of Destiny. And Simon um, Black. Yes. Who either brought this from Spain, no, from Egypt originally through Spain, this marble carved throne, or when he was uh, pulling up anchor in the middle of a storm, brought it up near the Irish coast from the ocean with one of his anchors, um, which I think is personally the more likely story, and saw that as a sign that he was to be king. And I think both of those origins are just very... Interesting. Yeah. What it what is interesting also is that Bauer gives you two different stories without telling you this is the right one necessarily. Yeah. Now, given what we currently think is <laughs> the Stone of Destiny and what it looks like, I'm inclined to believe the second story of how it was brought up from the ocean floor <laughs> because it is not an ornate marble chair. <laughs> um, no, no. Um, and I don't think that's somewhere where people would regularly sit, like the first story kind of like it tells you that the kings of the Scots in Spain used it to sit. <laughs> that doesn't look comfortable to me. <laughs> no. I, I can get it for, for ceremonial purposes once every like lifetime you'd sit on it, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And then they kind of hand wave the sort of like, oh, but it doesn't matter if you don't have this throne anymore. The 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 you know actual throne doesn't matter. You will still have the the country to kind of hand wave over the fact that the stone of destiny gets stolen and is at the time that Bauer was writing, not in Scotland. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that's fun. And then he goes on to describe how the the picks came who were. What, displaced from Ukraine? Um, yeah. Oh, decide- oh. The, the bellicose picks. Yeah. Um, decided to, you know, be given this corner of an island um, and then negotiated to marry the daughters of the Scots. And that's how the Scots got brought to current land of Scotland um, from Ireland. There were, there were no Pictish women, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only the men survived. Only this the men journey. survived. You know. <laughs> but then the important thing about this is that they agree, mm-hmm. the picks agree that they will then use the female line as the where they choose their, their kings from. So 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 of course the picks agree to, you know, being taken over. Naturally. Naturally, Naturally. that's what happened. Although I do have to say that out of the Scoto Pictish relations, my Favorite bit is the quarrel over a dog. Yes, <laughs> which is what which is what completely broke down relationships between these two peoples. Yeah, and like who had, according to Bauer, who mentions this 
on multiple occasions, mm-hmm. <laughs> been been living together peacefully for over 500 years and then the pics they basically steal a hunting dog and they don't give it back and they don't give any like money um oh, ransom <laughs> it's ransom they don't they don't pay for it basically to recompense for the fact that they've stolen a dog how dare they and then just like outright bloodshed <laughs> over the dog um, um a I- complete breakdown of a society that is intermarried and closely linked and basically family but did the dog survive yeah they don't mention that we don't know what happened to the dog i was like okay but what happened to the dog i do have to say that another favorite story of mine is some random and i don't know why this is even in the Scottish Chronicon, but it's this random passage about why the English have tails. Yes! I was going to talk about that too. <laughs> Just randomly inserted. Um, granted, there might be more context in the full version, but there's this really weird snippet, exp- which I had never I read. remembered that there was this idea that the English have tails. So that was fascinating. Yeah, and apparently he's copying this from Dunfermline manuscript that is now at the Biblioteca del Palacio Real in Madrid. Uh, and it, it contains a rather unique version of the life of St. Margaret. It includes a chronicle and some other things. So it seems that he's taking that story from there. But apparently, when Augustine of Canterbury arrived in England in 1597, certain people from where he arrives in Kent were completely against whatever Augustine said. So God punishes them by giving them tales. Tales. Well, yeah, they make fun of him first and and like tie fishtails to him. And so God's (laughs) Punishment is to give them actual tales um, that are hereditary because then people, you know, yeah. afterwards you keep getting everyone else kept being born with tales. Yeah. This is in book three, by the way, for those um, <laughs> following along. The most interesting thing about this for me was <laughs> that the, the tales mm-hmm. um, being the term for tale in Kentish or the town being Mugglington and how there's like a little bit of <laughs> explanation of the origins of the word muggle um, to <laughs> refer to tail, which puts a whole different spin on any Harry Potter um, <laughs> I think we've understandings. just, you know, hear Walter Bauer ruining Harry Potter for everyone. Yep, yep. Yeah, I, I thought it's just so weird. It, why would you put this? And I mean, it is followed by a chapter called The Proper Cure of Souls. Um, there are some super interesting things relating to the English in here. It's later on. I think it's mm-hmm. in book f- four that they um, talk about English clothes and how you can't tell the difference between men and women because their clothes are the same in an odd little description (laughs) it's like okay the the whole thing is weird yeah where is that story of of the fish there so right there at the top of the why english have tales where it's actually um oh i passed it it's in the first paragraph of the actual text of Bauer, where it says, they rebelled against him in all respects and tried to contradict everything that he said and to obscure everything by taking a wrong meaning out of it. And a thing which is wicked even to mention, 
They were so bold as to sew and hang fishtails on his clothing. Oh. <laughs> and that's the wicked thing, that it's even wicked to mention that they sewed fishtails on his clothing. I mean, in this case, sewing fishtails is bad. But then if you fast forward a few more <laughs> chapters, it is actually a very great strategy to get some nobles <laughs> that don't want to support you to support you exactly yes who is that who is that apparently brilliantly cunning that was kenneth mccalpin yes who was a very brilliant very brilliant king apparently the stratagem of king kenneth the stratagem of uh, king kenneth son of alpin um mm-hmm. that's book four yeah i will let you describe this one this is like the best story in here in my opinion so according to bauer kenneth son of alpin succeeded to the kingdom in 834 um and he was brave and prudent famous for his penetrating intellect and a very daring (laughs) leader in battles um (laughs) I want someone to describe me like this. So he is also a very clever guy, and he ran upon a few issues trying to leading Scots against the Picts. Convince them. Was, they were, you know, they were yeah, afraid. They were, they were, yeah. So he had his nobles, and nobles like, listen, I don't, I don't think we should go in there. I don't want to do this. So they seem to have backed down from what King Kenneth is asking them to do, which is just fight the Picts. Right, which he wants to do for one of several reasons, but one of the reasons is because he's still mad about this dog that the pigs stole. By the way, between the dog and King Kenneth, there's like three books. Just so <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> it's an old, old feud. This, this, this is a feud for the ages. So, like three books down, they're still mad about the dog. Um, but you know the the Scottish nobles are like I don't want to do this I'm a bit scared so King Kenneth is like I can't win without my nobles I can't do this so he worked out a very clever stratagem to make (laughs) sure that the magnets would do as he said so he found what he calls a certain skilled craftsman who was a great (laughs) favorite of his and then told him to do the following um and of course we all know this is a craftsman who actually follows anything that the king asks him to do so this craftsman took some scaly fish skins that kind of shone in at night with the moonlight and he lined a cloak with the fish scales and went at night to where the magnets were. And he would appear like them, like he was an angel from God. And then in the middle of the night would tell them, you need to follow the orders of King Kenneth. And they, you know, are all fearful of God. So they went running to King Kenneth and said, we said this, so we're going to just follow you into battle. And then the king said... (laughs) And the king on oath, I'm quoting from Bauer, and the king from oath to them, let it be known that he himself had heard and seen the same thing through that angel. (laughs) (laughs) So, So this is how you... Round your nobles together. Um, I have many questions about this account. Um, like, what do you do with the smell of fish? Yes. Since you're now... They, they had to know that something was fishy. Literally, something was fishy about this. There, <laughs> there's that. And then I don't, know if the, I don't know if the nobles knew 
the craftsman beforehand. You know, like right. He's like <laughs> I don't um, know. He sounds like a really special kind of guy. Maybe maybe you would recognize the voice of the angel at some point, but they believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, quote, <laughs> an angel of God face to face, and he warned us to follow you wherever you offer to go. I guess it worked. It's the dumbest plan ever. (laughs) It reminds me, was it Sir James Douglas who who went with the Scots with uh, covered in cowhide and pretending to be cows and overtook the English? And you're like, how did that even work? That's a ridiculous plan. (laughs) Apparently, people don't really know their animals very well in medieval Scotland. Of course, I don't know. I've never met an angel. I don't think so. Maybe angels look like they're covered in fish scales and smell kind of like fish. They totally do. Yeah. According to this, they totally do. <laughs> but but this is this is how Kenneth McAlpin took over the picks. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> and then I really enjoyed the description of how Fanula kills Kenneth II. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So, yeah, she rigs up this (laughs) death trap (laughs) where, like, she puts a statue of a boy in the middle of this room that where she has rigged up firing devices fitted at all sides of it, always at tension with separate strings for each equipped with very sharp darts. And in the center of them, there was a skillfully or they were skillfully attached to the firing devices of a statue standing in the form of a boy. If anyone touched the statue and moved it in any way whatsoever, the bowstrings of the firing device would be promptly released on all sides and he would be pierced by the darts, which would instantly have been shot. So sounds fairly clever, although sounds like it looks like it's very obviously a trap. Um, I mean, it, it sounds like... Finuela was quite the engineer, too. Yes, yeah. And very convincing, full of charisma, (laughs) was able to convince the king to just, hey, come over here, come with me. It's really important. Uh, Otherwise, people are going to think that I'm not loyal to you. Um, Come come with me. Yeah, and for context, so King Kenneth had this woman's son killed at Dunsany. And here the author doesn't really know why. By author, I think it should be, well, the Chronicagentis Cotorum and not really Bauer, but yeah. yeah, and that's why this woman does the trap. And also because she was already mad that her son was killed. She was convinced by enemies of Kenneth to do this plot. Yes. And and the king just is like, yeah, I killed your son. Oh, but you know what? I'm totally going to follow you to this mysterious place. And then, like, right in the trap, he's like, that's a weird statue. What's that doing there? And she's like, go over and move it. And he was impaled. Although I think here the, I think here the word they use is trans, transfixed. Yeah. Um, makes it sound better. Yeah. And then, yeah, his attendants are like, gosh, he's been away with this woman for a long time. Should we check on him? Eh, I guess we should check on him. And he's dead. Oh, and that is immediately followed up with why the English the English clothes are weird. Um, it's a very logical place to put that chapter. <laughs> right after you kill a king. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, then we get to the man of the hour of Malcolm. Oh, wait. No, that's Malcolm the second. Oh, close, close. Close. Not much happens with Malcolm the second. Well, apparently he was awesome. <laughs> and and that was it. And then 
we go to uh, Duncan. Duncan the first. <laughs> Which, I, my first question for you, because um, they mm-hmm. say that Duncan had two sons, Malcolm Canmore, meaning big head, mm-hmm. and Donald Bain. And I just never questioned the big headedness <laughs> before. <laughs> I didn't know if you had any comments. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it comes from from the Latin, uh, sorry, from Gaelic, count more. And it can mean big head. It can mean great chief. The mm. It seems, or at least it has been argued before, the epithet really started with Malcolm IV, one of Malcolm III's grandsons. Right. We don't know exactly how... Malcolm III became Malcolm Canmore and exactly why it does. I mean, it would make sense if you're trying to portray Malcolm as the founder along with St. Margaret and because of his marriage to St. Margaret as kind of like the, the starting point of a new royal, more European like dynasty. So, so he kind of becomes like a, a bit of a continuation of the past, but also a break with some of that past. I can see how how that nickname would make sense if you think about it as Great Chief. Right. Now I don't I don't think so. Um I mean because if we go to twelfth century the Ortnienga saga, then he's like long necked. Okay. <laughs> so we we're <laughs> we're just having here some um it depends who you ask. What you're asking, if you ask people Basically, from Orkney, and his head's funny. <laughs> there's something. There's something. There's something funny. off about his head. But but thank God for love, and love is blind because Margaret didn't seem to. <laughs> what is also very striking here in the chapter of the life and death of King Duncan the first, and I'm going to quote from Bower: "Nothing worthy <laughs> of mention happened in the kingdom during this short time of Duncan's reign because he enjoyed secure peace." with everyone, both foreigners and dwellers in the kingdom, except for the fact that a certain members of an ancient family of conspirators, here enters Macbeth, were accused by a widespread rumor of having conspired to kill the king just as they, as they had conspired to kill his grandfather, his predecessor. So here we, we see, well, Macbeth is yet not mentioned here, Yeah, but they are referring to Macbeth and, and Macbeth having coming from a la- long a longer line of traitors, right? If you will, I think he he does eventually mention Macbeth. Uh, yes, towards the end of the chapter, towards the end of that, yeah. And he mentions again this idea that he was killed through the wickedness of the family of the murderers of both his grandfather and great grandfather, chief yeah. among whom was Macbeth, son of Finley. Yeah, and he was killed in Pitgiveny, apparently. Yeah. What is interesting also here is the chapter that follows is the duties of a king, which I think it's chapter fifty. Uh, yeah. Of- Book four, where Bauer reflects on the three functions that a king has. And and that's actually quite important that he decides to put this chapter after Duncan is killed by Macbeth, who's a traitor and a usurper. And before we move into what happened with Malcolm and Donald Bain. Right. Because he's telling he's telling you that this is what a good king is. They establish reasonable laws by their wisdom. They bring malefactors to justice by means of their power. And they grant mercy to those who need it freely and compassionately. And these are three things that Malcolm end up doing. Yeah. And, um, and it's a transactional kind of relationship between the king and the people. So if the if you have a good king that does these three things, then the people need to 
show the qualities of honor, fear, and love. Yeah, yeah. I think the the placing of that was super interesting as well. Clearly trying to <laughs> make the case for well against Macbeth probably yeah. for Malcolm, and he does he does quite a bit of um, ancient and continental examples of these three functions. Yeah. So so he's really bringing these characteristics that good Scottish kings ought to have are in line with ancient and continental practice. Yeah. Yeah. That was super, super interesting. Is there anything that stands out about Bower's uh, discussion of Malcolm taking over or kicking Macbeth out? It's <laughs> um, the appearance of Macduff. So, um, right. And of course, Macduff, a five, again, we have our five centric character who doesn't appear in first appears in Bower, the earliest version of, extant version of this story survives in the Chronica Gentiscotorum, mm -hmm. which is, you know, what Bower is expanding on. So that's where we first read of Macduff of Fife, and it is precisely Macbeth's interactions with Macduff which prompts the return of Malcolm. I mean, in, in Bower, you see the people of Scotland and the nobles, you know, whispering Malcolm should return. He's the rightful prince. Mm -hmm. He should be on the throne. But, you know, whenever someone stated this very obvious, very true fact, Macbeth, like the tyrant he was supposed to be, then would kill or torture or dispossess anyone who would oppose him. Um, and it was when Macduff was mistreated by, by Macbeth that he takes flight to England to look for Malcolm. And that's how things are set in motion. What, what is happening also here is that Bauer is using a source, what we call now, it's, it's an anonymous source that Andrew of Winton also consulted independently. And it has additional information about Macduff of Five. Um, mm. like the location of Macduff's castle in Kennewee, the idea there's a, a verse version of, of what happens between Macduff and Macbeth, uh, the rights that Malcolm supposedly gave Macduff for helping him recover his throne, which is not part of this abridged version that we have on, on Kindle. Right. Those are all, all things that also appear in in Winton's Chronicle. And we know right. Bauer is not using Winton. So, so this is something that they seem to be consulting the same source independently. Um, mm. Winton also as a, as a man who was, who was in the patronage of, of Sir John Weems, who was constable of St. Andrew's Castle. He might have had easy access to the library at St. Andrew's. Mm. Right. We, one of the beautiful things about Scottish history is that we have sources that don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we, so we know they existed at some point um this should have been in five and this should have yeah. been in this place but we don't actually have uh, right we need to reconstruct these sources from whatever later sources they're used in um, yeah. so this is one of those cases where that um original anonymous five centric source is probably composed pretty much composed at st andrews like i would presume yeah uh, and 
and consulted there by two authors, but it only survives in these two chronicles that we know of. But but it does it does give a point of origin to the idea that the the Macduffs of five get their their privileges, like the privilege of of being the inauguration officer at the king's inauguration ceremony and several other privileges from Malcolm. So it gives another origin point. Not only Malcolm represents kind of a new dynasty, but also for the Macduffs of Five, this is the point at which they gain their, or the, the point where they get these um, very important privileges from what is a very seminal, very influential king. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that here Bauer followed for Dunn because um, I, I think I think that Winton's story about you know Burnham Wood and Dunson and Hill it's quite a thriller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think this, I, I think here the the uh, the Scotty Chronicon could have used a little bit sprucing up. Like this, this yes. was like this climatic battle that would have been great if if it was here, but it wasn't. So we just get a more standard narrative of how Macbeth meets his death at the hands of right. Malcolm. Yeah. I find it also interesting how Bauer describes sort of how Malcolm then ends up marrying Margaret. Mm. Um, and he's he talks about it as in, like, oh, he's heard that this family is a saintly family, and so he treats them with a little more kindness than he does other people, which suggests oh. that he's kind of a <laughs> not a nice guy. But... <laughs> In the context of he's like, but he's fluent in English and French and his own language. Yeah, the, the French was an addition here. That wasn't usually yeah. how this story went. <laughs> and then he sees Margaret. Apparently, it was love at first sight. Learned uh-huh. that she was a royal. Uh, well, uh-huh. I guess after he learned that tidbit of information. And then he was like, ah, you're going to be my wife. And he succeeds. <laughs> And, and I think she had no other choice when you're a refugee and, you know, you're running yeah. away from the Normans. I guess this is it. Right. It's kind of oddly, like... <laughs> romantic. It's so romantic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Bauer goes on to the, like, the virtuous works of Malcolm and Margaret. So, you know, he's he's linking them together in all of this. So that's nice. Yeah. Um, this is... It's it's interesting what different authors kind of do with this part of the life of St. Margaret. Yeah. Like the original life of St. Margaret erases Malcolm quite a bit. You know, the, the text from the 12th century um, written by Turgo of Durham kind of erases Malcolm a little bit. And, and anything, well, like they don't talk about the incursions Malcolm did in Northern England. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're you're writing your hagiography claiming that Mark, one of Margaret's virtues was to transform her husband and then the husband goes and raids England, then I don't think, doesn't sound like there's a lot of transformation there. Yeah. But, but it's interesting to see how different chroniclers kind of like either ascribe certain actions that Margaret took to Malcolm or they eliminate some of those actions. Yeah. Um, depending on what they want to achieve there. Yeah. And I, in amongst all of this, I find it interesting <laughs> that they would um, wash the feet of six poor people, mm-hmm. the king and the queen together, like after mass at Christmas. And then what's the other oh, thing that they talk about Margaret? Oh, yeah. The nine orphan babies where she buys. What's the, the phrasing that he uses? Oh, she had ordered 
that mild food, which is pleasing to infancy, <laughs> should be prepared for them daily. And it's like, so she fed them. Like, uh, yeah. It's just a, an odd kind of way of saying that she made sure the babies were fed. I mean... It also depends on on what that baby likes because some of them are really picky eater, eaters, right? right? Yeah. So whatever is pleasing to infancy might change from week to week. <laughs> yeah, it, I would love to have more information on like what was considered like appropriate baby food <laughs> at this time and how they dealt with picky eaters and stuff. It's <laughs> yeah, super super interesting. Um, but to be fair, Margaret had like eight kids, so she was she, she was a pro. It's true. She probably was because <laughs> she had all these orphans as well that she was taking care of. So yeah, um, and, and also it. I think it's not here, but um, one of the chapter headings in Bower. It's not in this abridged version. One of the chapter headings in Bower refers to Malcolm as a saint, which I Interesting. which I doubt a lot of people consider him a saint. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the point of the life of St. Margaret is, is a lot of it is, you know, she he was improved by his wife, but he wasn't the one who was a saint. But I find it interesting because I know that in the reliquaries of Philip II of Spain at El Escorial, mm -hmm. there's supposed to be the two bodies of both Malcolm and Margaret there in display. Well, right. not, not the, the sarcophagus and display. So the full bodies are supposedly in Spain. And the way that Malcolm is labeled is also St. Malcolm Canmore. Interesting. I don't know what that means. I'm just giving you a fact. Yeah, that is super interesting. Because <laughs> um, yes, I don't think that I have ever come across him as um, being labeled particularly saintly. But in the line of that, I did find um, towards the end of this book, we get we moved on to David the first, and I found it very interesting how he's basically written as if he's a saint as well, mm -hmm. <laughs> and everything that he does is you know in line with basically Margaret's yeah, saintly well, ways. He's he's Margaret's son, yeah. So therefore, it's genetic. Yeah, and this comes from Albert of Ribot. Which, right. um, who whom knew King, King David in person, but also it's trying to write this lamentation of David and, and portrays him in a very saintly manner. Yeah. Although apparently Bauer doesn't devote a lot of space to King David. No. Which is which is a bit surprising. Well, he had so much fishy business earlier to spend his <laughs> time on. You know, he spent boring old founding of monasteries. Like, come on. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it. You know, the, the the exciting stuff is pretty much in the first few books: the tales, the fish tales, mm -hmm. this dog scales, started massive war, dogs. It's a quite a <laughs> quite a narrative that I yeah. think. Um, gets a little bit more serious as it goes, and um, yeah, I, well, perhaps the sources get a little bit more reliable as you get closer to Bauer's actual time period. Mm, maybe reliable is not the best word there, but what, you mean that you mean that the angel thing didn't happen? <laughs> you know what? I totally believe it did. Thank you very much for joining me today to talk about the first five books of the Scotta Chronicon. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I had a good time. It was good remembering what was written in the Scotty Chronicon.
Scotta Chronicast is just one of many things relating to medieval history on Medievalist.net. If you like what you see and what you hear, consider being a patron on patreon.com slash medievalists. Thank you for joining us on the Scotta Chronicast. Please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow our account on Twitter, at Scotta Chronicast. Our music is Ex to Lux Oratur by Gaeta. Thanks for listening.